Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. May 20th, 1979. In a federal prison in Atlanta, 31-year-old Aryan Brotherhood leader Barry Mills watched an intense game of ping pong out in the yard. He paid particular attention to one player, 36-year-old John Marsloff. Marsloff helped Mills smuggle drugs into the prison for the Brotherhood. And in return, Marsloff got a 20% cut of the profits. But despite an amicable start to the partnership, Mills started to notice that Marsloff's numbers weren't adding up. What was being brought in wasn't aligning with the profits. It was clear that Marsloff was stealing, and he needed to go. Mills watched the ping pong game closely, waiting for his chance to strike. That chance came when Marsloff excused himself to the bathroom. Mills followed. Marsloff was washing his hands when he felt a presence behind him. He didn't even have time to turn around before Barry Mills plunged a 12-inch steel shank straight through his throat. Mills planted a shiv by Marsloff's bloody, lifeless body so he could claim self-defense. Then he simply walked away as if nothing had happened. Barry Mills would ultimately get a life sentence for the murder of John Marsloff. But the trade-off was worth it. The message was unmistakable. Don't cross the Aryan Brotherhood. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. This is our first episode on Barry Mills, an elite leader in one of the world's most vicious prison gangs, the Aryan Brotherhood. This week, we'll tell you how a small group of white supremacist prisoners at California's San Quentin prison turned into a national organized crime syndicate. Next week, we'll see how rats on the inside and brutal acts of violence on the outside led to a federal indictment that called for 23 death penalties, the most ever tried at once in an American court. The power and reach of the Aryan Brotherhood was at its apex in the 1990s, 
the same era when famed gangster John Gotti received a life sentence, and in 1996, their paths would cross. Gotti rose to the top of the Gambino crime family by murdering former boss Paul Castellano in 1985. For the next seven years, he dodged multiple criminal charges and became known as the Teflon Don. But in 1992, Gotti's luck ran out. The mobster was betrayed by his underboss, Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano, and sentenced to life in prison. Gotti was sent to a federal prison in Marion, Illinois, a facility that had housed many of the most feared members of the Aryan Brotherhood. On July 19, 1996, the 56-year-old Gotti got into an altercation with another inmate, Walter Johnson. Reports suggest that when Gotti was walking by Johnson, who was black, in the prison recreation room, he called him a racial slur. In response, Johnson punched Gotti multiple times in the head. A photo eventually leaked to the press showing Gotti's bloody head after the attack. Gotti had been publicly embarrassed. He needed to fight back, so he turned to the most dangerous men around, the Aryan Brotherhood. Gotti reached out to the Brotherhood about putting a hit on Johnson. The offer rumored to be somewhere between $40,000 and $400,000, was sent to the three men on the Brotherhood's leadership committee, Barry Mills, David Sahakian, and Michael Mack Michelini, all stationed in different prisons throughout the country. They would be the ones to decide if Gotti was worth killing for. For two weeks, the men deliberated passing messages to each other using secret codes and connections on the outside. Eventually, Mills decided that taking the contract would be a good way to show their strength. According to gang member Kevin Roach, Mills wanted to show that the Aryan Brotherhood could get anyone, anywhere, and that shooting someone in a maximum security prison would make an impact on the prison population. Mills wrote a letter to Marion using a jailhouse invisible ink, urine. In Marion, the Aryan Brotherhood member lit a match beneath the letter and waited for the words to appear in brown. He had the go-ahead. Once they got the money, the Brotherhood would arrange the hit. Kevin Roach was charged with carrying it out. By all accounts, Gotti paid up, but the Aryan Brotherhood never had the opportunity to carry out the contract. Johnson was transferred to another prison. Gotti, of course, demanded his money back, but instead of returning the cash, the Aryan Brotherhood offered to keep it in exchange for protecting Gotti for the future. Gotti refused. Within weeks, Gotti was attacked again. Whether the Brotherhood arranged the attack or if he had become a target on his own was unclear, probably even to Gotti. Either way, the Teflon Don had only one option. He would pay the Aryan Brotherhood for protection, and he allegedly did so until the day he died in 2002. This was the kind of power that the Aryan Brotherhood was able to flex. 
even the most famous gangster since Al Capone would bend to their will. By the 1990s, the AB was one of the most powerful forces in the American penal system. Mills and his brothers had come a long way from their origins in state lockup in San Quentin, California in the late 1960s. The secrecy code of the Aryan Brotherhood is so binding that many members keep their past before prison a secret. Barry Mills, in particular, is an enigma. He has never given an interview longer than a couple of macho quotes. Here are the few details we do know. Barry Mills grew up in Windsor, California, about a 45-minute drive from his future home in San Quentin State Prison. In 1967, at age 19, he stole a car from a local country club. Mills tried to evade charges by taking a Greyhound bus five hours south to Ventura, but he was arrested before he could even leave the county. Mills was convicted of grand theft auto and imprisoned at the Sonoma County Honor Farm. But after a few months locked up, he escaped. A week later, he and an accomplice robbed a 7-Eleven, stealing $775. Within three hours, they were arrested. Mills's partner turned on him, and Mills was sentenced to five years behind bars. He was shipped off to San Quentin State Prison, one of the most notorious in California. He arrived at San Quentin during a period of chaotic transformation in the prison's ecosystem. At the start of the 1960s, prisons around the country began to desegregate. For the first time, white, black, and Hispanic inmates were forced to eat and sleep together. What resulted was increasing acts of racial violence. San Quentin in particular became a notorious war zone. It didn't take long for gangs, based on racial lines, to form as means of protection. The first among them was the Mexican Mafia. The Mexican Mafia actually started off as a street gang in 1957 in California's Central Valley. But as members of the Mexican Mafia found themselves in San Quentin, they realized it was safer and smarter to stick together, especially as rival gangs started to form on the inside. Around the time the Mexican Mafia was adding to its numbers, black inmates saw that in order to survive, they should organize too. One of those gangs was the Marxist-Lenist-inspired Black Guerrilla Family, or BGF. As for the white inmates, the roots for their most prominent gang, the Aryan Brotherhood, can be found as early as 1964. However, unlike the Mexican Mafia or the BGF, they weren't nearly as organized. Instead, the alliances were smaller in size, with each faction fending for themselves. For years, tensions between all of these factions rose, particularly between the BGF and the white inmates with small fights out in the yard. But it was only a matter of time before those tensions escalated into something seismic. It finally happened on January 16, 1967. It was just another day on the yard until neo-Nazi inmate Robert Holderman broke the unspoken color line and walked up to a member of the BGF. What the two said has been lost to history, but given what happened next, 
it's likely that Haldeman brought up some of his racist beliefs. Before he knew it, Holderman was surrounded. He had BGF members on every side. The men pulled out their homemade weapons. Holderman was stabbed and beaten to death and left in the yard as a message. The next day, the place was ready to blow. The prison was already segregated, but that morning in the cafeteria, you could cut the tension with a shank. On both sides, men screamed racial slurs and vile threats. By the time that the recreation break came, it was an all-out race war. By some estimates, 1,800 black inmates and 1,000 white inmates clashed in the yard that day. Remarkably, no one died. Instead, something new was born. The riot convinced these smaller groups of white prisoners that they needed an actual organization of their own. The somewhat disorganized confederation of small gangs gave the rival black and Hispanic gangs a chance to wipe them off the prison yard. Only if they joined forces could they survive and flex their muscle. And thus, the Aryan Brotherhood was formed. Not long after the prison riot, 19-year-old Barry Mills was sent to San Quentin. He knew that if he wanted to survive the most notorious prison in California, he was going to have to join a gang. And he was more than ready to earn his way in, even if it meant murder. Up next, we'll take a look at the Aryan Brotherhood's bloody rise to power and their graduation into organized crime. Now, back to the story. When 19-year-old Barry Mills entered the California prison system in 1967, he found a loose organization of charismatic, testosterone-fueled white men that would become the Aryan Brotherhood. But the gang Mills joined, and would eventually lead, wasn't always called the AB. In the early days, the gang was just as often known as the Diamond Tooth Gang. Many of the members had been in the same Irish motorcycle gang on the outside, where they had picked up the habit of wearing glass shards in their teeth. They're also responsible for the Brotherhood's most enduring symbol, the shamrock. Jailhouse tattoos are a critical way to identify gang affiliations in prison. While most Aryan Brotherhood members have many white power and Nazi-inspired tattoos, their main mark is the shamrock, a callback to their Irish biker roots. The fact was, the Brotherhood co-opted symbols and references from a wide array of sources whose only connection was their whiteness. This even extends to their nickname, the brand. In the early 1970s, the libraries throughout the California penal system were heavily stocked with pulp westerns written by author Louis L'Amour. Several of the books feature an outlaw gang called The Brand, and it seems as though the early A.B. brothers took a liking to the name. It isn't entirely clear if they nicknamed themselves after the books or if others throughout the prison coined it for them. Regardless, 
the nickname stuck. Escapist novels were a lifeline for the Brotherhood. Many of these men, like Mills himself, had been in and out of prison since adolescence. They considered themselves state-raised, adolescents who grew up in welfare systems like orphanages, foster homes, or juvenile delinquent centers. Most of these institutions provide an education of the school of hard knocks. In order to survive, you need to be tough, strong, and bloodthirsty. In the 1970s, these young Brotherhood members combined the ultraviolence they learned growing up in the system with the stories of romance and glory they learned from Pulp Fiction novels. The ultimate glory in prison was victory in a one-on-one -on -one fight. Unlike most gangs, in prison or otherwise, the Aryan Brotherhood never actively recruits new members, and family relationships or friendships are not enough to guarantee admission. Instead, the Brotherhood waits until a white prisoner proves himself in a brutal fight on his own. Then they approach the potential recruit to see if he would be interested in joining. If the recruit is interested, there's generally a one-year probationary period, though what that entails is unknown. The probationary period ends when the recruit murders another inmate. Then he is initiated by swearing the blood-in, blood-out oath. Not only must he be willing to spill blood to gain entry into the gang, but in order to leave, his own blood must be spilled. In other words, death is the only way out. Blood in, blood out isn't unique to the Aryan Brotherhood. Almost all prison gangs make this a requirement to join. The Brotherhood, however, were one of the first prison gangs to adopt it. Much of what we know about the recruitment process comes from Michael Thompson, an inmate who joined the gang in the mid-1970s. He immediately caught the eyes of the AB because of his ridiculous size. At six foot four and nearly 300 pounds, Michael Thompson was a behemoth. The moment he arrived at Folsom Prison in 1975, he turned heads. If he wasn't the largest man in the prison at the time, he was close, and he looked all muscle. Thompson could break shackles with his bare hands. Thompson was convicted of murdering two drug runners after a deal went sideways. Allegedly, he then buried their bodies in lime in an abandoned backyard. He was sentenced to seven years to life, meaning if he kept his nose clean, he could have been out of prison in less than a decade. But in the notorious California state penal system, it wasn't that easy to keep your nose clean. Soon after his arrival, Thompson was working out in the yard when he was surrounded by members of the Black Gorilla family. Though they only threatened him, Thompson knew that worse was coming. That night in his cell, Thompson broke off a piece of metal from his bars and worked for hours, sharpening it into a knife. Thompson knew he would be searched before he was allowed in the yard the next day. He steeled himself and fit the 10-inch shank into his rectum. The next day in the yard, with the guards none the wiser, he was ready and armed. As expected, three BGF members surrounded Thompson. 
Thompson pulled out the shank and quickly stabbed each man as close to a major artery as possible. They continued to run at him, but Thompson used his superior size and speed to keep them off balance. Within minutes, Thompson stood surrounded by three hobbled men covered in their blood. He would walk away with just a few cuts of his own. According to Thompson, he was soon approached by members of the Aryan Brotherhood and asked about joining. Because he wanted to survive, he said yes. Impressed by his massive size and his ability to hold his own in a fight, Thompson was allowed to bypass the one-year probationary period and first kill requirement. Instead, he was voted in almost instantly. After reciting the blood-in, blood-out oath to the Brotherhood, Thompson was taken to a prison tattoo artist and branded. In a shadowed corner of the yard, the man used a makeshift tattoo gun constructed out of a hair trimmer, pen, guitar string, and needle. In no time at all, Thompson was sporting the shamrock tattoo. It's unclear how long Thompson was at Folsom before he was eventually transferred to San Quentin. Regardless, once he was branded, he threw himself entirely into the Brotherhood. He even became close with Barry Mills. For inmates like Thompson and Mills, a prison gang wasn't just a means for protection. It was the only decision they were allowed to make on their own. By entering prison, these men had to forfeit their freedom their ability to choose where they can go, what they can eat, and how they can live. Just the mere act of joining a gang gives them a sense that they still have some say over their lives. What ultimately occurs, of course, is institutionalization. Between the penal system and the gang, these men are psychologically transformed by their experiences in prison. Almost all, especially those who serve longer sentences, become dependent on the system, and it's sometimes impossible to readjust to the outside world. Thus, after they're released, offenders are likely to return to the rigid prison life and the brothers they made inside. And as these men threw themselves headfirst into the gang life, they began to find small glimmers of pleasure to justify the heinous acts of violence they dealt out. For Michael Thompson, he latched on to their taste for classic literature. He was given Sun Tzu's Art of War, Machiavelli's The Prince, various works of Nietzsche, and yes, even Hitler's Mein Kampf. With plenty of time on his hands, Thompson took to the reading like a fish to water. Thompson became especially devoted to Nietzsche, understanding the Aryan Brotherhood as a group of self-reliant warriors who were establishing their power of will over their reality. The warrior mentality is the most prevalent belief that the Brotherhood has. Alongside the aforementioned books, the men are drawn to tales of the Norse gods. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, its adherents see themselves as ancient Viking warriors destined for Valhalla. This idea is held as more sacred than the white nationalism they brand themselves with. In fact, Michael Thompson revealed that while racism is definitely present within the Brotherhood, it isn't as dominant as one would think. 
Surprisingly, one of the more high-ranking members in the gang was half-Jewish. Tyler T.D. Bingham was a muscle-strapped bank robber who could bench over 500 pounds. He was proud enough of his Jewish faith to bear a Star of David tattoo on his left arm. Of course, he also wore a swastika on his right. Apparently to Bingham, there was no hypocrisy. For the Aryan Brotherhood, at the end of the day, power trumps every other part of their ideology. Bingham was a warrior. For him, they could overlook the rest of their neo-Nazi beliefs. Bingham and Michael Thompson joined the Brotherhood when it was undergoing a great change, becoming more of a criminal organization than just a prison gang. While the warrior mentality is the mindset the Brotherhood lives by, its driving force has become one thing, money. Early on, the AB realized that drugs were the heart of the prison economy. Inmates would use loved ones to smuggle in drugs and sell them to addicts on the inside. In the 1970s, the Brotherhood experimented with various ways to get drugs into prison. At some point in the mid-1970s, while Charles Manson was being held in San Quentin, the Brotherhood convinced the Manson family to smuggle in drugs for them. This alliance fell apart, however, when Manson expressed disagreements with the Aryan Brotherhood's racist ideology and refused to kill a black man due to his skin color. Ironic, given that Manson had used his followers to try and start a race war. Ultimately, it would be a few decades before the Brotherhood really got their foot into the drug trade. Why it took so long to establish a hold is unclear though it's possible that the gang's initial structure and its growing numbers played a role in their difficulties. In the early days, the Brotherhood had been run by a one-man, one-vote method, a true democracy. Unfortunately, as membership swelled throughout the 1970s, this led to total disorganization. On top of that, some high-ranking members were sent to out-of-state prisons. Naturally, these men began recruiting members into the Brotherhood, creating a pathway to a national group. However, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, what resulted was a division, the California AB and the Federal AB. Between 1975 and 1977, these two factions acted as separate gangs. It became obvious to men like Barry Mills and Michael Thompson that reform needed to happen if the Brotherhood wanted to really have national presence and perhaps solidify a drug trafficking operation. But reform wouldn't come, at least not yet. Barry Mills, who by now it appears was a leading member, faced a minor setback to his Brotherhood career. He was finally released from prison. Coming up, the Aryan Brotherhood expands nationally, leaving a trail of bodies in its path. Now, back to the story. At the end of 1977, 29-year-old Barry Mills, a leading member of the Aryan Brotherhood, wanted to reform the gang and establish a new structure. 
Unfortunately for him, he received devastating news. He was granted parole. His time behind bars throughout the 1970s is a little murky, but what we do know was that in December of 1977, Mills was out of San Quentin. It would last less than six months. In early 1978, he was arrested and sentenced to 20 years for bank robbery, one that happened two years earlier while Mills was behind bars. In 1976, members of the Brotherhood robbed a small bank out in Fresno, California, 200 miles southeast of San Quentin. The robbers thought they would go in, grab the money, and walk away with up to two million in cash. In the end, they made off with little more than $21,000. The FBI and the local authorities worked for two years to find the perpetrators. By 1977, their investigation was nearly complete, and one of the conspirators had fingered Mills as the mastermind. While still in the slammer, he had located blueprints of the bank and sent them to the robbers on the outside. How exactly he obtained these blueprints is a mystery. In theory, Mills would get his share when he was out. But as soon as he thought he was free, the feds pulled Mills right back in. He was sentenced to another 20 years in federal prison. At some point in 1979, Mills was transferred to Atlanta, where he began establishing a drug trafficking operation. He recruited fellow inmate John Marsloff to help. Unfortunately, Mills discovered that Marsloff was stealing from the Brotherhood. To show the rest of the prison that the Brotherhood wasn't to be trifled with, Mills executed Marsloff in a prison bathroom, nearly decapitating him. The murder would earn Mills a sentence of life in prison. Never again would he know freedom outside prison walls. It's possible that that was the point. In prison, he was a top dog. In the outside world, he was a two-bit thief. And with a life sentence, Mills knew he wasn't going anywhere. So he could focus his attention on doing something he'd wanted to do for years, restructure the Brotherhood. Sometime in the early 1980s, the Aryan Brotherhood organized a meeting at a prison in Chino, California. They exploited a loophole in the appeals system, where inmates serving as their own attorneys could call witnesses to their prison to give depositions, even if those witnesses happened to be inmates at other prisons. Soon, dozens of AB members were on their way to the summit. At the meeting, the men decided to organize themselves into a system modeled broadly on the Italian Mafia. Twelve men would be elected into a council that would then manage the operations throughout the state prisons. From there, the council would then elect a three-person commission that held oversight. Michael Thompson was elected to the California Council, while Barry Mills and T.D. Bingham were two of the men on the three-person commission. With the new structure in place, it was time to consolidate power around the country. 
Soon, members of the Brotherhood found themselves transferred to prisons in Georgia, Illinois, and Kansas. And with membership expansion came growth for their drug trade. The full scope of the AB's drug-running operation may never be known, but the demand for drugs in prison was exploding throughout the 1980s and 90s. Between 1975 and 2008, the imprisoned population in the United States rose from 200,000 to over 1.5 million people. More inmates meant more customers, and more customers meant they needed more drugs. The Aryan Brotherhood was perfectly positioned to exploit this growth, having gradually developed their reputation and supply lines over the past decade. It's not a coincidence that they were nicknamed the brand. Like Kleenex or Band-Aids, if you were looking for a fix in prison, and especially if you were white, there was one trusted option the Aryan Brotherhood. While the details of their operation are shrouded in secrecy, we do have brief glimpses of how the Brotherhood was able to flood these prisons with drugs. More often than not, they used mules to bring in small amounts at a time, usually wrapped in cellophane, condoms, or balloons. Usually, these packages were swallowed and regurgitated once past security, or inserted anally in a process called keistering. As the years passed and the money flowed, the easiest way to hold on to territory was through brute force. The gang's reputation of brutal violence became legendary. As one former member described, if it comes down to it, you run him into the warden's office, you butcher him on the warden's desk. If the warden gets in the way, you butcher him too. If his parakeet gets in the way, you kill that too. That's how the Aryan Brotherhood functioned. Ironically, the Brotherhood got away with a lot of the murder because of the inherent nature of the correctional system. There was a common abbreviation for this kind of killing, NHI, no humans involved. While jailhouse murders were occasionally prosecuted, as when Mills was charged with killing Marsloff, many more went off the books. Unfortunately, that didn't necessarily mean the Brotherhood's operations were entirely smooth. While they often literally got away with murder, efforts to curb their activities were always in effect. And the best way to damage, or at least disrupt, Brotherhood activity was to find a snitch as the Brotherhood expanded across the country, there came a surge in snitches, usually disgruntled members looking to shave some time off of their sentence. The only way to deal with a snitch was to make an example out of them. Historically speaking, this usually happened within the walls of prison. But in the fall of 1982, the Aryan Brotherhood needed to send a message to a rat. And the only way to send that message was to murder a civilian. In 1982, Aryan Brotherhood member Stephen Barnes had turned state's witness against the Brotherhood in a murder trial that implicated one of the commissioners. Barnes was placed in witness protection so the Brotherhood couldn't reach him. He was held under pseudonyms and would rotate prisons regularly, remaining in solitary confinement. 
So the commission hatched another plan. They would murder Barnes's father, Richard. Until then, the gang had never killed family members or their victims were fellow inmates. This would be a new low. They put it up for a vote, sending coded letters around to leaders at various federal prisons. Barry Mills, who may have orchestrated the plot, was an easy yes. According to Michael Thompson, then 30 years old, he was the only no. In his eyes, civilians should never be mixed up in gang business. Soon afterwards, 42-year-old hitman Curtis Floyd Price was paroled from Chino State Prison in Southern California and tasked with murdering Steve Barnes's father. On the night of February 12, 1983, Price drove to Richard Barnes's house in Temple City, California, about 20 minutes from downtown Los Angeles. After threatening Barnes, Price forced the older man to lie face down in his bed. He then buried three 22 caliber bullets in Barnes's skull, execution style. After murdering Richard Barnes, Price drove to the house of Elizabeth Hickey, a young single mother he'd been seeing since his release from prison. Price proceeded to beat Hickey to death, crushing her skull in five places. He wanted to make sure that even if she had seen something incriminating in their time together, she would never tell a soul. After the double homicides, Price sauntered over to a post office and sent a postcard to one of the commissioners. It read, business has been taken care of. Eventually, Price was caught and convicted of the two murders. He was sentenced to death in 1991, but due to a recent order by the governor to halt all executions in California, he'll likely be serving life in prison instead. After the 1983 hit, whatever case Steve Barnes had been helping the government build against the Brotherhood suddenly crumbled. It's unclear whether this was because Steve stopped talking or if there were other mitigating factors, but the murder of Richard Barnes certainly couldn't have helped the case. The gang had sent a powerful message. No one, not even family, was safe. However, the successful hit came at a price. Until the murders of Richard Barnes and Elizabeth Hickey, high-ranking Brotherhood member Michael Thompson had believed that the AB was just a safe path through the trial by fire that was prison. After the murders, though, he had a crisis of conscience. In interviews, Thompson makes it sound as if the decision to leave and turn on his friends was an easy decision. As he told David Gann for The New Yorker in 2004, I argued with them for days. I kept saying, we're warriors, aren't we? We don't kill mothers and fathers. But I lost. And they killed him, execution style. And then they killed Hickey, an innocent woman, just because she knew where Price got the gun. And that's when I walked away. That's when I said, this thing is out of control. In 1986, Thompson testified against Price at his trial. Within 24 hours, the Brotherhood 
had put a bounty on his head. For the next several decades, Thompson was moved through the prison witness protection system under the code name Occupant. And his family entered witness protection themselves. In 2019, at the age of 67, Thompson was released from prison. He would be one of the few for whom blood out was not the end. Meanwhile, back in prison, the 1983 murders of Barnes and Hickey were only just the beginning for the Aryan Brotherhood. Over in Marion, Illinois, a group of Brotherhood members upped the ante even further. They were no longer just killing innocent women and family members. Now, they were executing correctional officers. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week as we explore the Aryan Brotherhood's war with prison guards and their battle with federal authorities that led to a record 23 death penalty charges. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Gareth Imperato, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alistair Murden. Mm-hmm.